live into that? That's a really important question. And then he goes on and he says this, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So you can see a little bit of the disclaimer there, right? Like, if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, the passage goes on, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So this God that we know and love is constantly inviting us into a relationship where we can know God and be known by God and actually grow in that relationship. And so this gospel that we talk about here on Gospel Sunday is thinking about the good news that God loves the world enough that God sent God's son to die in our place. Um, it's good news because we can't earn our own salvation. It's not something that we can make happen. But it's good news because we who were once enemies from God, who were once alienated from God, have been reconciled by God and adopted into the family of God. And another passage out of 1 John says this, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. So as we live into this, we're living into the reality that God has claimed us. God has made us God's people, and God is going to work in the midst of us. So with that said, I'd like to um, read now um, Luke 17, actually 1 through 10. We're going to go through the whole passage, then we'll come back and sort of deal with different sections um, as we look at it. But listen closely, um, Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. Verse 1, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better, verse 2, for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Verse 4, and if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. You ever been in that boat? You know, help us to believe more. And then verse 6, and the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Verse 7, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Verse 8, will you not rather say to him, prepare dinner for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Verse 10, so also when you have done all you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our, du what was our duty. Let's pray together. So God, I pray today that you would open us up to your word, that we might really live into the reality of who you've created us to be. And we thank you, God, that you love us and that you're with us and that you actually want to have a relationship with us. That, that's sort of a mind blower, God, that you actually care enough that you want to be connected to us. So help us to be open to that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a sort of famous story of a man who wrote a book about humility, um, you know, humility and how I achieved it. 
Um, and that whole idea of, um, you know, is almost as contradictory as Jesus's words when he talks about a good Samaritan, right? Because a good Samaritan didn't exist. But one of the paradoxes of humility is that unlike all the other virtues, those who really possess it usually don't have the slightest idea that they do. There's all kinds of various short stories which Luke has collected here, and they have this one common thread. They all point toward the humility which true servants of Jesus must learn. We're called uh, to be those who humble themselves and are humbled in the midst of our relationship with God. Think first about warnings of people tripping each other up. This has some reference in the previous two chapters in which the little ones would refer to those who were sort of outcast. They were not welcomed um, by the Pharisees. They were sort of seen as marginal. But in terms of who Jesus is, Jesus invites them in. And the way that the world is now, um, until God's final victory over the enemy, there are bound to be times when people find their faith tested and sometimes tested beyond what we can bear. In fact, in one of the most graphic descriptions of um, anywhere in the Gospels, Jesus warned that it would be better if a millstone were shaped, which has you know, sort of a shape around a central hole, um, if it would become a collar that could drag you to the bottom of the ocean. And that there you know, is what we see in terms of God's care and God's desire to keep the body of Christ healthy. So Christian leaders and teachers need this warning on a regular basis. It's possible for um, them to do and say things which makes others think, well, you know, if that's how God's representative acts, then I suppose this whole thing may just be a big waste of time. So how can we avoid putting someone in that situation? Well, the answer again is humility. We have to be humble with each other. You know, it's interesting, um, and there's this call for repeated repentance, um, repeated forgiveness, which we'll look at, and we're going to dive into that a lot today. But it's pretty easy for us to sort of take um, the high moral ground. You know, I haven't done anything wrong, so if I choose to forgive you, well, that makes me superior to you. But, but Jesus' approach is utterly different than that. When you forgive someone, what Jesus says is that you're making yourself their servant, not their master. Forgiving someone again and again is not meant to become harder and harder for us. It's not like we're somehow holding our breath or trying to you know, stay underwater for a longer period of time. Um, if we think that's what it is, then we've sort of missed the meaning altogether. But rather, as believers, we're meant to be humble, to take no advantage of the situation, to give to the other person the same kind of generous and welcoming forgiveness that God has shown us in the first place. You know, if you've experienced God's forgiveness, then the best thing we can do is to pass that on to others that they would know. You know, if you have any doubt about that, just take a moment and sort of think about God's grace to you. God is a gracious God who loves us and invites us into relationship with God's self. So it's not surprising, really, that the disciples in verse 5, they say, you know, we need more faith. You know, uh, increase our faith. Give us more of what we need. Help us to, to believe this, to live into it. And, but Jesus says, you know, it's not great faith that you need. It's actually faith in a great God. 
That's the difference. You know, faith is like a window that we can sort of see something through. It doesn't matter if the window's six inches or if it's six feet. What matters is that God, the God of our faith, what God is looking out on. And if it's the creator God, the one who's active in Jesus and the Spirit, then the tiniest piece of that window will give us access to power like we never imagined. Of course, it can't be used for our own whim or our pleasure, and as soon as we try, uh, you know, we would show and realize that we've missed the point of who this God is. So once again, the message is humility counts. Humility counts. So let's go back to the passage. I'm gonna work through it a little bit. Um, we're starting with um, verse one, and it says this, that he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through who they come. And so we see here that there's a change of audience um, from the Pharisees back to the disciples. And this whole 17.1 sort of signals a beginning of a new section in this passage. And the Greek presents a sort of double negative. It's interesting, you know, um, in the Greek, there's always these sort of nuances that are going on, but literally verse one says, it is impossible for scandals not to come. A double negative. It's impossible for scandals not to come. And what is the scandal? Well, it's this sort of cause of stumbling. And um, in context, it designates anything that causes another person, another believer, to abandon his or her faith and turn away from allegiance to, te to Jesus and to his teaching. And so this cry of grief, literally this word woe um, for the one by whom they come. Verse two says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than it would be to cause one of these little ones to sin. You know, what's a millstone? In fact, it's interesting. Oh, <laughs> I um, I go by um, I go by um, a place that's near our house, and there's actually a millstone sitting out there. I've wondered where they got that. It's just this gigantic, you know, stone. But millstones were common in um, in lots of villages right outside of Capernaum in Galilee. And what happened is that the grain, once it had been um, separated from the chaff was ground between these millstones. The millstones were what they grounded the, 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 um, the grain with. So the upper millstone sort of fit over the lower one, and it had a kind of funnel-shaped top um, through which then they would drop the grain so that it could get ground up. And, and some of these millstones were actually three or four feet high, so the image really makes a, a pretty vivid point. Um, the stones were rotated by actually harnessing a donkey to that with a beam of wood, and, um, and then that donkey would walk along, and as it walked along, it would grind up all of that. So in order for a man to have a millstone around his neck, um, he would have to stick his head through the upper hole. It's really sort of a ludicrous and maybe even a little bit um, comical image, if that is what is meant. But it's also pretty graphic and pretty um, effective because there cannot be any escape from the consequences of blocking, discouraging, or of hindering another person's response to God's call. So just as seriousness of becoming an obstacle to another's faith is dramatized by this idea of a millstone, so also 
the necessity of forgiveness is dramatized. Because in the same way, any time that somebody sins against you and yet at the same time asks for forgiveness, we're told to give that to them, even if it's seven times in a single day. So the responsibility for all this is not placed on the penitent person to demonstrate his or her repentance, but on the disciple, rather, to demonstrate that they are capable of following Jesus' command to forgive one who repents. So here's the key to this. This is how serious Jesus takes causing sin in the body. The members of the body are called these little ones. They're objects of God's tender care. And the major responsibility always resides with the teachers and the leaders. And so Jesus continues to get us thinking about this. Verse 3 says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If your repents, forgive him. Forgive, how, how do we do that? How do we forgive? How do we live into that? And then verse 4, and if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You see, the sinner's repentance should always produce the church's forgiveness. Forgiveness reveals the community's commitment to righteousness, to right living, to being in right standing with God. So disciples should depend on each other for support and realize that our spirituality is never just a private pursuit. It's not just us and God, it's always us and a shared community that we live together and breathe together and we are community together, that, that whatever we do affects each other. We're part of the body. It's not a matter of just keeping a constant watch on each other, which is why forgiveness is so central. And Jesus answers that as many times as someone repents and asks for forgiveness, you should give it. And another key characteristic of discipleship is also having faith. And I like this verse five, you know, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And you know, the disciples' response to his, Jesus' admonitions is that they're to live by this kingdom ethic. They're to repeatedly confront and forgive those who sin with a plea that comes from their surprise, dismay, and sense of inadequacy. Increase our faith, help us to live more by faith. It's an interesting sort of, I guess, side note that what happens is we can actually grow in our faith. We can actually grow in our trust of God. And so verse six says again, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say this mulberry tree be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. You see, for Jesus, it's not the amount of faith that's important. It's rather just the presence of faith that makes all the difference. The disciples ask for their faith to be increased, but Jesus says, all you need is, is faith the size of a mustard seed. I mean, that's one of the smallest seeds that exists, but he says that when you say that and when you claim that faith, then you can do amazing things. A small amount of faith can accomplish things that lead to unusual events. 
And then the final image of this is that short a short parable about service. Jesus discusses the, um, the life of a slave. So verse 7, 8, 9, and 10, this is what it says. Well, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And then verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You see, whether the servant plows or watches sheep, when he comes in, it's the expectation that the servant will serve dinner to the master. And that happens before the servant gets their own meal. And yet there's no thanks that's offered to the slave since he's simply doing what's commanded. And the service of Jesus' servants actually works in precisely the same way. Our attitude should be that we have only done our duty. We have simply had the opportunity to serve and that we have to understand that we don't get to pick necessarily all that we do, but that we obey and follow God in the midst of that. So as we think about this, I wanna do some bridging of context because I think it's important for us to understand. Like, so Jesus understands and knows that sin will come. There will be times when we let each other down, but that's the reality of what it means to be in community together. We sometimes disappoint each other. But he says, you know, don't be the cause of stumbling in the body because God actually takes the source of sin in the body seriously. 1 Corinthians 3.17 says this, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. So this whole idea of not allowing sin into the body or somehow com um, confronting sin that's in the body shows us how important it is to take uh, the pursuit of righteousness, not take it for granted. Forgiveness itself points to how seriously the community honors the road to restored relationships. You know, it's easy for us to hold things against each other, but the reality is that God invites us to be a community where we offer forgiveness and we renew our relationships on a, on a daily, weekly manner. 1 Corinthians 1.5 says that, you know, unchecked sin is sort of like yeast that roams through the community. It's a kind of virus that runs unchecked. It, it takes its toll on things. But if forgiveness not offered is not offered, there's no way to restoration after someone turns from sin. And the absence of restoration can be as deadly to the life of a community as the presence of sin itself. Since through restoration, that's really the only way we can grow beyond our past failures. We need to be that fluid. We need to be those who love and forgive and invite people in. And so faith plays a central role in our spiritual lives. We're saved by faith. We walk by faith in God. And 
Jesus, again, is primarily concerned that faith's present. He's not concerned about the size of the faith. We have to ask God to give us spiritual strength, um, to help us to be unselfish, to love each other, to be with each other. And here's the thing. We are absolutely, we are for sure the body of Christ. The fact is we need each other. And all above that, it means that we are committed to go where God's taking us, that God will lead us where God wants us to go. So how do we keep our relationships healthy and renewed? How do we learn to love, care for, and be the church together? You know, one of the things that we have to sort of realize is that we're called to give thoughtful, thoughtfulness um, to our faithfulness in maintaining a strong walk with God. It all starts there. How do we continue to grow in our relationship with God? But it's also a kind of um, welding together of truth and integrity because those things matter as well. How do we walk in faithful integrity together? Um, you know, a church that's sort of just recognized as being a watchdog about sin uh, may not have a strong reputation for compassion. And when we hold people down in sort of the muck of their past failures, keep reminding them again of all the things they've done wrong, that's not really helpful, is it? And so the passage begs the question, why are communities so slow sometimes to forgive? It's easy to make people or want to have people pay for their failures rather than create an environment where restoration is, um, is actually invited, is possible. And we should, in our community, in our church together, uh, be sensitive to sin, but at the same time, not be close to grace. Because faith and trust and grace, they all walk hand in hand. You know, again, Jesus doesn't call for a magic amount of faith, but rather he calls for his presence. Uh, we should serve God because of who God is, because God is worth serving. And if a slave does his duty for his master faithfully, how much more should God's children, all of us, as those loved by him, serve him faithfully as well? couple of reflections on this. The parable of the worthless servant is probably no one's favorite, <laughs> yet it drives us to re-examine our assumptions about our relationship with God. The difficulty is that while the parable makes a significant point about discipleship and humility before God, our, our inclination oftentimes is to think that, you know, if we do what we're commanded, we deserve some kind of reward, we think. But it really doesn't offer us that. God's favor and blessing in matters of grace, they can't ever be earned. They're not ours for the taking. Therefore, when we assume that we can deal with God on the basis of what God owes us, we make a big mistake. Because God is always inviting us into life. We reject grace as the basis of our relationships to God and base that relationship on our own worth and our own merit. But remember, grace by definition 
is always a free gift. It's not something that we make happen. It is the gift of God which is given to us. So herein lies the challenge. The summary, don't be a hindrance to the discipleship of others. Review sin, forgive all who ask for forgiveness. When, you're done, when you've done all this, do not assume that you've done more than your duty. Because sin is never a private matter. It always affects the whole community. When I was um, going to seminary um, out in California, had a um, professor named Lewis Smeads at Fuller Seminary, and Smeads um, wrote a book called um, Forgive and Forget. And he talked about healing the wounds that we don't deserve. And, and he had his, his sort of premise, and I, I want us to really, I want us to sort of dive into this because I think it's really important. Um, as a premise, he said, you know, the fact is somebody hurt you, maybe yesterday, maybe it was a lifetime ago, and, and you can't forget it. Um, you didn't deserve the hurt. It went deep, deep enough to, large, to lodge itself in your memory, and it keeps on hurting you now. Then he goes on to say, you know, we're not alone. You're not alone in this. We all muddle our way through life with um, where well-meaning people hurt each other. We don't mean to do it, but it happens. We invest ourselves in deep personal relationships. We open our souls to the wounds of another's disloyalty or even betrayal. And there are some hurts that we really can't ignore. Not every slight sticks with us, thank God, but some old pains simply don't wash away so easily. They remain like stubborn stains in the fabric of our own memory. There are kinds of deep hurts that we never deserve that flow from a dead past, but they flow into our living present, and they have a way of sort of restricting us. Maybe it was a friend that betrayed you at one point, or maybe a parent that abused you, or a spouse that left you in the cold, uh, those hurts don't simply heal with the coming of the sun. We've all wished at one time or another that we could reach back into that painful moment and sort of cut it out of our lives. And, but the only power that can stop this inexhaustible stream of painful memories is actually the faculty of forgiveness. It's as simple as that. Forgiveness is God's invention for coming to terms with the world in which, despite our best intentions, people are unfair to each other and we hurt each other deeply. He began forgive by forgiving us, and he invites us all to forgive each other. You know, it was back in 1984 that um, most of the Western world heard the story of how one January dawn, Pope John Paul walked into a dark cell in a prison in Rome to meet the man who had tried to kill him. The Pope took the hand of the man who had fired a bullet at his heart and forgave him. But here's the deal. <laughs> the Pope is sort of a professional forgiver, right? So, you know, it might be that it's um, a lot, lot easier for somebody who's placed in that kind of a profession um, to forgive when he knows ahead of time that the whole world's gonna be watching him but it's 10 times harder for the ordinary person whom nobody is watching to forgive and forget because forgiveness is God's toughest work, love's greatest work, love's biggest task. 
If you twist it into something it was never meant to be, it can make you a doormat or sometimes an insufferable manipulator. And actually, forgiveness sometimes even seems a little bit unnatural. Our, our sense of fairness tells us people should pay for the wrong that they did. But remember again that forgiveness is God's power to break nature's rule. So you have to ask yourself some of these questions. You know, as we're in the midst of being this community together where we against each other, we hurt each other, we don't mean to do it, but, but we have to be resilient in this. Um, here's a question, who is forgivable? Or maybe the flip side of that is, who is not forgivable, right? So Smeets continues, he says this, he says, people are the only ones who can be held accountable for what they do. People are the only ones who can accept forgiveness and decide to come back to us. So let that sink in just for a moment. How is it that God invites us to that kind of resilient living where we can forgive and forget and be God's people together? There was a play called The Black Angel that was put together by Michael Christopher and he, he tells the story of Hermann Ingels. Ingels was a German general in World War II, was sentenced by a court to 30 years in prison for atrocities that were committed by his army. But at the time of this play, um, Ingels is actually hiding. He's building a cabin in the woods where he and his wife intend to live out their last years, sort of incognito, forgotten, at peace. But there's a French journalist, his name is Maru, and he's waiting in the wings. You see, Maru's whole family had been massacred by Ingalls during the war. And some 30 years before Maru privately condemned Ingalls to die, and his condemnation of Ingalls was kept alive by the fire of hate he kept in his heart. And so the day had finally come when he could take retribution. So Maru had fired up the fanatics in the village close by Ingalls' cabin that very night. They were coming up the hill. They were going to burn down the cabin, shoot Ingle and his wife dead. But Maru wanted to get there before all of this happened. So he went up the hill, and he introduced himself to a shaken Ingalls, and he spent the afternoon grilling the former general about the village massacre that laid like a sort of forgotten shadow in Ingalls' past. And somehow, in that encounter, Ingalls' feeble humanity made him seem less like a monster than just a simple, tired old man. And this sort of confused Maru. He wasn't sure what quite to do with that. As the play went on in the afternoon and the sun fell deep in the woods, Maru blurted out to Ingalls that the villagers were going to come and kill him that night and he offered to lead Ingalls out of the woods and save his life. And so Ingalls paused, and he looked right into uh, Maru's face, and he said, I will go with you on one condition. One condition. And that condition is that you forgive me. That you forgive me. It was just too much for Maru because his hatred had become a passion that was too long lodged in his soul. He couldn't, he couldn't live, could no longer the be the person he had been for so many years 
without his hatred. He had become his hatred. It's a tragedy which only forgiveness, the one thing he could not give to Ingalls, it's the one thing that could have set Maru free. Here's the message. Hate can be fatal when we let it grow inside of us. The best of people can get their bullies full of it, their bellies full of it. And Smeeds continues, he says, when you forgive someone for hurting you, you perform spiritual surgery inside your soul. You cut away the wrong that has been done so that you can see your enemy, quote, enemy, through the eyes that can heal your soul. You can detach that person from the herd and let it go, the way that a child opens their hands and allows a butterfly that they've had in captivity to go free. And the Bible talks the same way when it describes how God forgives. Because in this ancient drama of atonement, God took a bundle of human sins off of a person's back and tied them to a goat, the scapegoat. And then it was kicked and it was sent off, leaving the sinner free of their burden. Or as the psalmist says it, God wipes away our sins as a mother washes grime from a child's face, removes it from us as far as the east is removed from the west, and never shall they meet again. A scapegoat, a washed face, it's poetic language for what it is that God does with God's own mind. God, God forgets and forgives once what we once did it becomes irrelevant to how it is that God sees us and understands us. So here's the truth. If you can't free people from the wrongs and see them as the needy people they are, then you enslave yourself to your own painful past. And by fastening yourself to the past, you become, or you let hate become your future. So the key then is that you can only reverse your future by releasing other people from their past. So let's do a couple reflection things right now. Maybe the most important person that you need to learn to forgive today is yourself. Have you ever thought about that? Because you see, forgiving yourself takes a lot of courage. Um, you know, Here's the negative side, you know, who are you after all to somehow shake yourself free of that undeniable sense of your private history as if it once had no bearing on who you are now? Where do you get the right to forgive yourself when other people would want you to crawl in shame if they really knew the whole ugly, you know, side of who you are? How dare you, some people might say. But the answer to that on the positive side is that you get the right to forgive yourself only because of the entitlements of love. Because God loves you and forgives you. And you dare forgive yourself with only the courage of love. Love is the ultimate source of both your right and your courage to ignore the indictment that says somehow you messed up. Somehow you can't be forgiven. Yes, you can. God can forgive you. But there's also sort of a key in this, 
We can't really forgive ourselves unless we look at the failure of our past and call it by its right name. It means that we've got to own up to who we are and what we've done. So what happens when you finally do forgive yourself? Well, there's good news in that. Because when you forgive yourself, you rewrite your script. Let's take one other step and think about this. Maybe you're okay with forgiving yourself, but maybe today you need to figure out how to forgive God. You know, God is the one who casts our sins as far away as the east and the west. Are you capable of forgiving God? Maybe God's let you down or maybe disappointed you by allowing some kind of tragedy or sickness or cruelty in this world that we're in. Maybe permitting some things to happen to you. But here's the deal. Remember that God is the one who suffers with us. God suffers with us. I'm going to close with one more story, but before we do, I'm going to invite the band to come back out on stage, and then we'll, um, we'll think together and listen to the story together. So, Ellie Weisel, you know, talked about watching three people hang one day in an Auschwitz concentration camp. And here's what he saw. It's a pretty graphic story, so, you know, bear with me, and if you find it's too graphic, you know, I'm okay if you check out on that. So one day when they came back from work, they saw three gallows strung up in the assembly place. And there were three victims in chains, and one of them was a little boy, the one who had been called the sad angel. And the three victims were mounted together onto chairs, and their three necks were all placed at the same time in the nooses. And then at a sign, all three chairs were tipped over. There was total silence throughout the camp. And then the march past began. One of the things that happened at Auschwitz was that whenever someone was being hung, you were made to actually walk by, and they had to look this poor boy straight in the face each time they saw him. But El said this. He said, Behind me I heard a man asking, where is God now? And I heard another voice answer him. Where is God? Here God is. God is hanging on these gallows. Now, before you get sort of flustered with that, listen to what he's saying. When we suffer, Jesus suffers with us. When we find ourselves in difficult places, God is with us. Remember Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Had God forsaken Jesus? No, not at all. God was right there. And one of the ways we can practice what we preach is actually by reaching out to people in forgiveness. Because you see, forgiveness itself is real. Forgiveness is confrontational. Forgiveness brings freedom. And forgiveness is love's ultimate power. Love frees us because love is more powerful. And so God is in the midst of that with us. I'd like to invite you to stand as we sing our closing song.
So it's been good to be together today. I appreciate you being here and the opportunity. You know, the last couple of days here at um, CLC, we did, um, we did a funeral Friday and Saturday. Christian, great help with all that. Um, but reality is that um, people continue to talk about how meaningful this church is, how important body is together. And I think that's really important for us to get. 
Um, we've been, um, you know, I've been wrestling with stuff, trying to figure out, um, you know, what the trajectory of my life looks like. And, you know, your presence in this place makes a big difference. Um, I'm at a place where I've made some decisions. Um, and so I'm actually retiring, um, starting in a couple of weeks um, from here at the Christian Life Center. And um, we'll be looking for some new opportunities, um, figuring on, trying to, moving on, trying to figure out some next steps for that. Um, but I want you to know that I'm grateful for you, grateful for this thriving um, group of believers and this thr thriving community of believers. So um, I'm not done yet. I actually preach on December 12th, and um, last day in the office will probably be December 15th. But, and would love to have an opportunity to meet with you and, um, you know, talk with you as time allows for that. So um, it's been good to be here together and to, um, to be God's people together. And I'm grateful for God's love and God's grace. And I'm grateful for you, grateful for the opportunity to, um, to be connected, um, to be in ministry together. And um, just pray God's best blessings on all of you as well. So the benediction today um, actually is out of Jude 24. It's one of my, my favorite um, verses. It says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. So go in peace today, and may you know that, um, that God walks with you. Amen.